welcome to Discovering the Law. My name is Lucy Rivera, and today we have a very special guest. We have Judge David Griffin, and he is the judge in the Boston Juvenile Court. Your Honor, thank you so much for being here today with us. Well, thank you so much for inviting me here today. It's a pleasure to be here. And I want to commend you for all the fine work you've done on this show for the last 14 years. It's very impressive how many judges you've had on from the Supreme Judicial Court, from the Appeals Court, from the Trial Court, Cabinet Secretaries, politicians. It's been a very impressive 14 years, so I commend you on that. Your Honor, thank you so much. I appreciate that. But we're here to celebrate your achievements and accomplishments in the law and your excellence in the legal field. So, Your Honor, would you please share with us what is the juvenile court? Well, let me put that in context for you. So there are seven trial court departments. So when people go to court across the Commonwealth, they're going to go to one of the seven courts. So there's a probate and family court. So that's typically where people would go for divorces or probating estates. You have the housing court where people go usually for landlord-tenant type issues, eviction type cases. You have land court, which deals with land disputes like adverse possession, for example. You have um, the district court and Boston Municipal Court, which deal with crimes, uh, I believe, up to misdemeanors and felonies that can be end up with five years of incarceration. And on the civil side, I believe it's $50,000 or less, those types of cases. And then Superior Court deals with more serious criminal cases, including first-degree murder, second-degree murder, and you know, civil cases more than $50,000. And then you have the juvenile court, which I believe, and I'm biased, to be the most important uh, court in the Commonwealth. It's a statewide court that, has, that works with the children and families of the Commonwealth. Indeed it is, and thank you so much for putting that into context for us to understand. Um, how does it work? So we see it all in the juvenile court, all day, every day. We see mental health issues, we see domestic violence, we see abuse and neglect, we see the struggles people have with poverty in the criminal session, we see uh, all kinds of crimes, including gun cases. So it's a very, very busy, active court. And all day, every day, it's a very stressful place. Emotions run uh, strong. Uh, the pace is fast. And cases can be tragic. But despite that, there's many positive outcomes in the juvenile court. And that's a result of the hard work that parents and children put in when they come in. Uh, they work very hard in engaging in services. And that leads to positive outcome. And it's also a credit to the hard work that the staff of the juvenile court put into these cases. Um, Your Honor, how many judges are there in the juvenile court? So there's 42 judges, including uh, the chief, ju uh, chief justice of the court, and they're all uh, assigned to different counties. So there's 40 sessions throughout the Commonwealth, all the way from Cape Cod as far uh, north as uh, North Adams. So there's over 40 sessions. But then there's 11 counties, and judges are assigned to each county. So there's uh, Essex County, uh, Suffolk County, Barnstable County, Bristol County, Plymouth County, Worcester County, Franklin County, Hamden County, Hampshire County, Berkshire County, and what am I forgetting? Oh, right, Middlesex County. That is impressive. That is an impressive memory, Your Honor. And this is why you are the judge in the juvenile court. Um, but who, who works in the juvenile court? 
So we're very fortunate to have a very dedicated and hardworking staff in the juvenile court. So we have the clerk's office, and a lot of people, when they come into the court, that may be the first uh, uh, people they meet. That's where like motions are filed, pleadings are filed. Uh, when you're in the courtroom, the person that sits in front of the judge is a clerk, and that person has the very important role of kind of organizing the day, managing the cases. It's a very uh, labor-intensive job, and especially in the juvenile court. And we're lucky in, in uh, Suffolk County, we just have an excellent uh, clerk magistrate and a fantastic clerk's office. So, and then there's a probation department, which has a very important role as well. They're involved in most of the cases. They uh, are a great resource for families in terms of uh, referrals in the community. They have, they're in the session with us, with the judge and the clerk, and they provide information to us about whether our orders are being followed. They do investigations and provide information to us, which helps us you know, manage the caseload. I mean, there's court officers there that help people to navigate the building. They're always in the session. Um, and then we're very fortunate to have a court clinic. So the court clinic is a very important uh, entity in the court. It's staffed by uh, psychologists, social workers, master's level clinicians who do evaluations of uh, families and they make recommendations for treatment. I'd, I'd like to come back to that and ask you about sure. the court clinics. Um, However, right now, would you let us know what is a juvenile? What would that be considered under the state law? So, right. So a juvenile in terms of uh, the delinquency criminal side is between the ages of 12 and 18. So what does that mean? It means if you're under age of 12 in Massachusetts, you cannot be charged with a crime. Um, and um, so how young is too young to join the court? So it depends. Mm -hmm. So um, on the criminal side, uh, it's you know twelve. There's a on, uh, on the civil side, like care and protection petitions, we'll see newborns come in. So uh, it could come in at any age, up to age eighteen. Oh. There's uh, child requiring assistance cases. So those are for children from six years of age up to age eighteen. So it depends. It depends. Um, however, once you reach a certain age, there is a transition. Um, how old do you have to be to transition to adult court? So it depends. My answer to everything, it depends. So let me tell you how it depends. So on the civil side, pretty much it is age 18, but there is an exception <clears throat> to that. It's the PYA cases. And those are cases in which uh, a child who is in the custody of the Department of Children and Families can choose to sign in to the Department of Children and Families past age 18. And what that allows them to do is get services and help from the department with housing, education, job training, and it can help them transition into adulthood up to age uh, 22. And that would be on the civil side? Yes. And um, is there a transition for the criminal side? So criminal side, uh, that's, a, that's, that's a very interesting question. So there are uh, certain cases that uh, go directly to superior court, and that would be first and second degree murder. So you could have, for instance, a 16-year-old who, if uh, charged with first or second degree murder, they go right to superior court where they can be tried as an adult. We also do something that's called a transfer hearing. So that is, uh, or a 72A hearing, that's when somebody is alleged to have committed a crime prior to age 18, but for whatever reason, 
they aren't brought into the juvenile court until after age 18. So what the Commonwealth or DA will do is they'll ask that the case be transferred to the adult court. We have a hearing and make a determination as to whether that individual should go to adult court to be tried. It is really interesting and the work done that is extremely important. Um, talking about the civil side of the juvenile court, what are delinquency cases? So the delinquency cases um, are, are cases in which uh, the Commonwealth's alleging a criminal offense and a lot of those cases uh, can be diverted and the, the district attorney, particularly in uh, Suffolk County, uh, diverts a lot of cases. There's a formal diversion program, there's an informal diversion program. And the goal of that is to hopefully prevent the juvenile from getting a criminal record and providing the juvenile with the services and help that is needed to work through whatever issues they need to work through and hopefully never come back to juvenile court again. Um, uh, what other types of cases does the juvenile court hear? So on the civil side, there's a lot of cases that we hear. So um, there's care and protection petitions. There's child requiring assistance cases. There's harassment cases. There's um, Section 35, which uh, Section 35 case is a case where somebody's coming in and asking that somebody be ordered to go to a drug or a alcohol uh, treatment program due to their substance abuse disorder or alcohol abuse disorder. We do uh, civil commitment, so that's a situation where uh, generally a hospital is asking us to commit somebody to a hospital because there's somebody who's uh, at risk to themselves or others, they have a mental illness and there's no less restrictive environment for the person, so they'll come in and we'll have hearings about that. We do guardianships and we do adoptions, to name a few. To name a few, all the roster of work. Right. So today we are learning from Judge David Griffin. He is a judge in the Boston Juvenile Court. So this interview will be viewed at www.discoveringthelaw.com. Uh, Your Honor, thank you for telling us about the juvenile court and helping us learn. Could you talk to us about the clinics that you mentioned earlier, the court clinics in juvenile court? Yeah, it's such an important uh, component to the juvenile court. So there's, we have psychologists, we have social workers, we have uh, clinicians down there, master's level. So we w could refer cases down for a, a lot of issues. In the criminal session, it could be a competency here. Competency issue, is the person competent to stand trial? On the civil side, it might be an evaluation to tease out what the mental health issues are and what, what would be helpful uh, uh, for an individual to get help with in their, in their case. That we do parenting evaluations, getting evaluations on people's parenting skills. So it's such an important uh, resource that we have and judges will refer C&P cases there, will refer child requiring assistance cases and then uh, some cases in the criminal session get referred there as well. Your Honor, what do you mean by the CMP cases? So care and protection cases um, is a lot of uh, the work in the um, juvenile court. So a care and protection petition is one in which the Department of Children and Families typically petitions the court and they're alleging that there's been an abuse or neglect of a child or children by a parent or, or could be a guardian as well. So uh, the case is filed in juvenile court. Attorneys are appointed for the ch child or children, the parents. And then we have hearings of, about the issue of whether or not 
that particular child or children should be placed in the temporary custody of the Department of Ch Children and Families or whether some other type of arrangement could be uh, set up. Uh, people have a right to a, what's called a temporary custody hearing. People can call witnesses. Um, it's a full evidentiary hearing. And at the end of these hearings, the judge will make a decision about how to proceed with the case. Um, <clears throat> I, I, we can appreciate that you see sad aspects of life in this very important role. However, do you also see positive, beautiful life aspects? For example, could you talk to us about the adoption side of it? Sure. Adoptions, of course, are a very exciting event in the juvenile court. Um, so what will happen is um, the case comes in, and it's, it's an event when we do an adoption. It's a very happy event for the children, for the family. Um, and when the hearing is over, the adoption is formalized. Sometimes uh, there's a name change, sometimes there isn't, but it's a very exciting uh, day for the family when adoptions come into the court. And um, so how many adoptions do you think you, you would see within a month, for example? That is a great question. I would say, for me, at least probably one a month, maybe more. Mm -hmm. Yep. And every year uh, in November, we have National Adoption Day. Wonderful. So the whole court just does adoptions. And so in one adoption day, I may do four or five adoptions, and all the other judges will do a handful of adoptions. So it's a, it's a very exciting day in the court, National Adoption Day. That sounds really uh, uplifting and wonderful. We have only 10 minutes left. Okay. But I would like to ask you also about the other aspect that sounds very interesting. Guardianships. Yes. What can you tell us about that? So guardianships, what can happen is you have a case that comes in, uh, typically a care and protection case, and um, sometimes the parties agree that that would be the best resolution to the case. So maybe there's a grandparent or a relative or somebody else who can, uh, to, who can be the legal guardian. So. People are entitled to a trial on that. Sometimes we have trials on whether that's the best plan. Sometimes all the parties agree that guardianship is the best route. So, so once that happens, it's a formal procedure. What we go through, similar to adoptions, where the legal, where the, the adoption is, the guardianship is finalized, and the party or parties become the legal guardian of the child. At which point, when you're legal guardian, you're responsible for making medical decisions, educational decisions, and most other decisions that a, that a parent would make. That is a huge responsibility. Um, oh, about how many guardianship petitions do you think uh, you would see, say for example, within a month? Within a month. I would say maybe one a month. One a month, yeah. okay. Could be more. Um, you also talked about other aspects of the court, that all the other different services that yes. are provided. For example, um, you said you talked about the CRA, which is used to be called uh, acronym CHINS. Correct. It used to be the CHINS. Yeah, now it's called CRAs. Tell yeah. us about that a little bit. Uh, what what is that all about? All right. So CRAs, those those are a lot of cases that come into the court as well. So that's child requiring assistance cases, and there's five kinds of uh, CRAs that can be filed. So um, one type is uh, 
you know, habitual school offender or truancy case. So that's typically when a school department comes in and files a CRA, and they're looking for help with the, the student. On the truancy, it's because there's been a lot of unexcused absences. The habitual school offender is more. They're having some issues at school. So they file the CRA. It comes into court. Probation meets with the, the family, and they try to figure out a plan. And sometimes the plan is uh, something we call an informal agreement. So an informal agreement would be they put together a plan that hopefully can help address the issues that are causing the problems in school. For instance, it could be a court clinic referral. We could get a guardian ad litem involved who can do some educational advocacy uh, for the child. Attorneys are appointed, and they can advocate on behalf of the child to get whatever services are necessary. So there's a lot of work that can be done on, on those types of cases. And then there are cases, there's uh, runaway cases, sexually exploited child cases, and what they call CRA stubborn cases. And those are typically cases in which families come in or, or perhaps even a guardian comes in and they're just asking the court for help with whatever issue they're struggling. And the court can act accordingly. I know probation, as I've indicated, is a great resource for these families in terms of hooking them up with services in the community. The court clinic is available as a resource. They have attorneys. So everyone tries to work together to try to, to help the child and the family work through whatever issues they're going through. It is very important when you mentioned that everybody gets an attorney and they have a right to an attorney. Would you tell us a little bit as to um, that aspect in juvenile court, that the fact that you can have an attorney? No, it's a very important uh, role that the attorneys play. So for the children, it's their voice. So the attorney for the child has an extremely important role in the juvenile court. So in the uh, care and protection cases, they're the voice of the child. They're letting the court know what the child wants, how they're doing. It's an incredibly important role. And when it's trial, they have a very important role of litigating issues on behalf of their child client. Parents have a right to counsel, so uh, they have an important role of working with their clients and advocating on their clients' behalf and ensuring that their due process rights are respected. And on CRAs, there are situations where um, parents or guardians could get uh, lawyers or well, depending on the circumstances. If custody is an issue on the case, then they would be entitled uh, to counsel. So the attorneys play an important role in terms of advocating on behalf of their client, and they can also play a role in helping their client navigate what type of services would be beneficial to lead to a positive outcome in their case. So we're very fortunate in Suffolk County to have a lot of very talented attorneys working in our court. Um, Your Honor, I'm sure that attorney and the legal community appreciates your acumen and your leadership in the court to decide these cases. Um, we do have five minutes um, to... Goes by fast. It goes by fast. Uh, but um, I, I wanted to follow up on what an adjudicatory hearing would be in the juvenile court. I know there are civil and criminal. What can you tell us about that? So on the, on the criminal side, the adjudicate hearing could be a jury trial so people are entitled to a jury trial it could be a bench trial uh, uh, in which a, a judge decides whether somebody is delinquent or not delinquent or guilty or not guilty um, 
There's other resolutions, but those would be the adjudications. That people could have an agreement about an adjudication, and there's procedures to go through that. And then on the civil side, so on the care and protection cases, an adjudication could result in permanent custody to the Department of Children and Families. It could result in a termination of parental rights. Uh, sometimes those cases are re resolved by agreement. Sometimes it's, uh, it's a trial. Um, CRAs, it's very similar. You can have adjudicatory hearings on the issue of whether the child requires assistance. Again, people can agree that the child requires assistance, or you can have a hearing to determine that. But with all these cases, if you have, if you have a trial, uh, a jury trial, a bench trial in the court, if you have a uh, termination parental rights or a adjudication hearing seeking permanent custody or even a adjudication of a child requiring assistance, you have a full hearing. And if somebody disagrees with uh, what the judge decides, which does happen, people have the right to appeal that decision. So they can appeal that decision up to the appeals court. And uh, attorneys are appointed. They brief the cases, and they argue it in front of the appeals court. If they're not satisfied with that decision, they can ask the Supreme Judicial Court to take a look at the case as well. So people uh, have a lot of rights in the court, and those, those rights are respected. On that subject, Your Honor, uh, is it free, the legal services that are appointed? All these attorneys that get appointed, since the juvenile court has a civil and criminal aspect, um, are the attorneys appointed f for free, or, or do they? is there a payment for these attorneys? What, what is your opinion about that? So on the criminal side, you know, all the juveniles have a right to counsel, so they're all going to get attorneys. So that's, that is not an issue. On the civil side, um, again, all the children are going to get attorneys. That is not going to be an issue. The issue of parents getting attorneys, there is a right to counsel. They have to uh, qualify as indigent, so there's forms that get filled out with probation. And if they're eligible for counsel, then counsel will be appointed for them and they'll have attorneys. If they want to hire their own attorney, that's their choice as well. They can bring in their own attorneys. So most of the cases we see in the juvenile court, uh, people are represented by counsel. That is wonderful. Uh, Your Honor, we have two minutes left in this uh, interview, uh, but we are grateful for your wisdom, authoritativeness, and your skill in the juvenile uh, laws of Massachusetts. Um, can you tell us a little bit uh, um, about the structure of the juvenile court? So, um, you know, I've talked about the different departments in the court and the kind of the, the different counties where everybody sits. We're down to one minute. We're doing it. So, um, right. So I think we're very fortunate to have a lot of people in the court who are very talented uh, that work every day on behalf of the children and families of the Commonwealth. Thank you, um, Your Honor. Today, for all our viewers, uh, we were fortunate and grateful to have the Boston Juvenile Court Judge David Griffin, uh, which we are very grateful for your time today. And this episode can be viewed at www.discoveringthelaw.com, and we can learn more about the Juvenile Court. And Your Honor, uh, thank you for your time today. 
Thank you for coming here to share your knowledge and experience with us. No, again, thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. And for all of us, for you guys, thank you for watching us. My name is Lucy Rivera, and I am the host of the show today.